Good morning. Good to see you. And uh, we are so glad that you're here and we get to worship together. Um, and if you're visiting, a special welcome to you. And my name is Brian Habig, and I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton who was leading us in the worship service. Uh, and if, if you're visiting and just kind of don't know your way around yet or have some question, please let us know. And uh, we'd be happy to try to be helpful. Um, I want to read to you a little something and tell you a little bit about a South Carolinian that you may never have heard of. And Jake mentioned when we were preparing our hearts for worship that this is, you're going to hear a lot of Jewishness in the service this morning. I mean, we just, I hope you heard it in the the hymn that we just sung, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, talking about, uh, it's talking about the church, but it's describing her as being Zion talks about us being priests and a kingdom, very Old Testament language, very Old Testament language. Um, This is a big book uh, from among my big books, and this is about a guy named Benjamin Morgan Palmer. It's his biography. Benjamin Morgan Palmer was born in Charleston, and he uh, attended the University of Georgia. He graduated back in the 1830s, so think early 19th century, went to seminary in Columbia, and uh, he pastored in Columbia. If you've ever seen old First Prez in Columbia, the corner of Marion and Bull, uh, he was a pastor there for a time. But most of his ministerial life was in New Orleans. Uh, he pastored there for decades and was very loved by New Orleans. Now, you know, no one's perfect, and you could read his biography, and you could hear he had blind spots, too. But uh, a pretty remarkable guy, and uh, one thing that he did that just won the heart of New Orleans was, you know, in the South, sometimes you would get these yellow fever epidemics, and it would just, I mean, people would just die in droves. And uh, when a massive yellow fever epidemic hit the city of New Orleans, a lot of the haves left, you know, and and cleared out because they had the means to clear out. And he, he at least knew the kind of people that would give him the resources to, to, uh, to leave, but he stayed and pastored in New Orleans and just went into homes where people were sick and prayed for them and tried to help them in their, in their time of need. So just, he was a very loved guy. When, uh, when he turned 80 years old, the city just showed up in droves to his house. Lived on Henry Clay Avenue in New Orleans, and uh, something like 10,000 people can you imagine that? 10,000 people come over to your house. 10,000 people came over, and uh, these messages and letters came from all over the South and really all over the country, just these expressions of love and appreciation for him. But uh, to me, one of the most remarkable things that happened that day was that representatives came from three different New Orleans synagogues. And... Um, gave him expensive gifts. Uh, one of the synagogues, which, which is actually still in New Orleans, it still exists today, gave him this beautiful, solid silver uh, chalice uh, with his name engraved in it. And, they, and when they presented it to him, they talked about in a devout Jewish household, at the beginning of the Sabbath, the head of the household would pour wine in a cup and pronounce a blessing over it and talk about the covenant and let the members of the family drink the cup. And they poured wine into his cup and gave it to him and and just very much identified with him. And um, so it was very moving. And uh, they said that, you know, at the age of 80, it really touched him. He kind of had to, took a moment to regain his composure. 
And uh, someone who was there wrote down what he said, and here's what he said on that occasion. The Old Testament and the New Testament come together under this roof today, and that's the roof of his house. The Old and the New Testaments, which are the two breasts from which the church of God in all the ages has drunk its nourishment. There's a great deal that is in common between us. Your sacred books are my sacred books. And in the pulpit, when ministering to the people in God's name, I take the theme of, of discourse as freely from one as from the other, from those grand teachings of the Old Testament, as freely as from the evangelists and the apostles in the New Testament. There ought not to be any harsh feelings between the bodies that you and I represent. And th- th- that was not just rhetoric. This was for real. Like, he loved the Jewish community in New Orleans, and the Jewish community felt that and loved him. And, uh, and when he passed, that was, uh, when he died, that was, that was expressed as well. Now, if you read the rest of the biography, it is very clear Benjamin Morgan Palmer was very Christian. He wasn't kind of Christian. He was very Christian and very Protestant and very Presbyterian. So where did that come from? You know, but, and I'm going to touch on this more in a second because, you know, sadly, sometimes the way people have shown my devotion to Jesus, my devotion to Christianity is to be uh, against Judaism and even to be anti-Semitic. But that's not where, what you saw in his life. Where did that, not just one-sided love, but mutual love come from? And this passage has everything to do with that. And, and, and I've, I've, I've kind of felt torn in preparing for this because our demographic is there's not a large Jewish population here. But in some ways, I feel like because of that, we're the very people that need to hear this. How am I to think about, and this is going to come up a lot more in chapter 11 of Romans, how am I to think about Judaism either locally or on a larger scale Where does it fit in our life as a church? Where does it fit in my life as a Christian? Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now remember where we were last week, where you were, I was gone. But Jake preached on this, this beautiful passage about there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And then immediately... After that, Paul says this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac 
shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah, Abraham's wife, shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, Isaac's wife, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, please open our eyes to your word. And uh, we, there's things that we know that we need, <clears throat> whether that's in the form of, of even things that Jake prayed about of employment or encouragement or changes in our family. Uh, but there are things that we need that we don't know. And we thank you, Father, that you know what we need. Uh, Your word gives us things that we don't even know we need. So feed us by your hand, um, shine light on your word and into our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me. I'm going to be referring a good bit this morning to Israel. And I want to say this on the front end just so that we're, we're on the same page. When I say Israel... Our minds, you know, after the late 1940s, tend to go to the nation-state of Israel. Um, That's not primarily what I'm talking about. It it would overlap with that some. But as I say Israel, I want you to think more in terms of Judaism, particularly devout Judaism and ethnic Judaism. So not so much the, the, the nation that you hear about in the news, but think about more largely Jewishness, Judaism. And I want to look at two things this morning. Loving Israel and being Israel. Okay? Loving Israel and being Israel. How do you see a healthy love for Israel in, a, in what Paul writes? And it's really, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable how strongly he says some of these things. And Think about it in several ways. Number one, he, he celebrates Israel. He celebrates the uniqueness and the background of it. And then he identifies with it. And then he prioritizes it. Now, let's break that down. All this is loving Israel. But think about, first off, the celebrating of it. Look back at the passage starting in verse 4. He's talking about the Jews, Israelites. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. And this is like a flyby of the Old Testament. And I'm not going to go through every one of the the items, but just think about a few of them. He says, the Jews, the Israelite, theirs is the adoption. There is no other nation in the scriptures that God calls his sons, except Israel. He doesn't say that about 
Philistines or Egyptians or anything like that, although he created all of them. He's their creator, they bear his image, they're our neighbors, but he doesn't call them his sons, but he says that about Israel. Um, The glory. There's, There's no other record of God telling a group of people, a nation, a people, Build, not, not even a, t- a building, build a tent. Build a tent this exact way. And when those people built that tent that exact way, the tabernacle, that the glory of God inhabited it so that the priest had to, to back away from it. The same thing happened when the temple was built. That, that although God in His glory sits on His throne in heaven in some unique way, He identified with and inhabited the holy of holies with his glory in Israel. The patriarchs. You know, uh, you you don't hear God in Scripture saying, I am the God of enlisting Moabite names or Greek names. But the way he identifies himself is, I am the God. This is throughout the Scriptures. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs. And then kind of the, the, the cherry on top is that the Messiah, the Christ, in his human existence, you know, according to the flesh, is descended from Israel. He's of that people. Think about this. The very first thing that the Apostle Paul teaches you about Jesus in Romans. What's the first thing he teaches you about Jesus? Romans chapter 1 verse 3 is that the Messiah is descended from David according to the flesh. Okay, so he, he just celebrates it without qualification. Then he identifies with it. Now, how do you see that? Look at what he says um, in verse 3, the latter part of verse 3. What does he call his Jewish relatives, his Jewish friends, acquaintances, He calls them. Now, these are people who do not yet believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. What does he call them? He says, they are my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And this is kind of the preeminent Christian epistle written by the preeminent Christian apostle, Christian, 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 high-octane Christian. What does he call the Jews? my brothers, my kin. And get this, not in this passage, but two chapters later, at the beginning of Romans 11, he says, I myself am an Israelite. So he identifies with them. But then on top of that, he prioritizes them. Now, this is not so much in this passage, but I'm kind of zooming, you know, zooming the camera out. One of the most famous passages in Romans is a passage that's in the first chapter. It's kind of this opening salvo. And the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then he says something very important next. For the Jew first, then for the Greek, or for the Gentile. And he uses that phrase again in the next chapter. For the Jew first, the Israelite is in line ahead of the Gentiles 
in receiving the gospel. We both need it just as much, but in the priority, the Jew first has access to it. And just so you'll know that he wasn't blowing smoke, if you, if you get out the book that comes before this in the New Testament, the book of Acts, and you look at when Paul was on these missionary journeys and he went into different cities, when he went into a new city to tell people about Jesus, how did he do it? Like, what, like what would your mental picture be of how Jesus spread the... I mean, uh, how Paul did... When he went into a city, did he just kind of go to the public speech area and start talking? Or did he get on a busy street corner and start talking? Look in the book of Acts, and just almost without exception, he starts where? At the synagogue. Like, these are the people that have the law and the prophets. These are the people that are hearing the scriptures read every Sabbath. And he would go in and he would say, I want to tell you about the person who fulfills the law and the prophets. So this was real. Now, all that to say, what you hear in these words, you know, and, and not just in his words, but like what you see in his actions is he loves Israel. Why is that important? Well, I mentioned this just a little while ago. It has been the case, uh, not just generically in world history, it's been the case in church history that, that Christians have felt like the way I show that I'm committed to Jesus is that um, I, I'm very opposed to those who don't love Jesus. And, you know, part of, um, part of being Christians is to be open at least, it ought to be that way. And uh, part of being family is being honest about our own past. Sometimes it, it's, it's healthy for us to read people that, that we like to quote where they got things wrong. You know, occasionally we ought to, we ought to quote C.S. Lewis really getting something really wrong. Uh, we ought to quote, you know, just uh, name, your, name your Christian writer. I want to quote you something that Martin Luther wrote. And um, this is Martin Luther, the German reformer. I've quoted him a bunch. Hey, and when he's on, he's on. And most of what he wrote, I would say, is on. But this is off. This is from a piece that he wrote about 25 years after the 95 Theses. And it's called On the Jews and Their Lies. This is from volume 47 of, of his works. Uh, it's, it's too long to read all of it. But here's the question. He's writing to, to Christian leaders in Germany, and he's saying, all right, Christianity is spreading. There's a return to the Scriptures, but we still have Jewish citizens in our midst. What should we do with Jewish citizens? How should we respond to that? All right, that's the question. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct now that we are, are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming. If we do... We become sharers in their lies, cursing, and blasphemy. So, what are our action steps? Quote, first, to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom so that God might see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of His Son and of his Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. 
For they pursue in them the same aims as in their synagogues. Instead, they might be lodged under a roof or in a barn like the gypsies. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Now, I'll stop there. I'll say it again. When Luther was on, he was on. Uh, That could not be more unbiblical. And and he, he, you don't even have to um, ascertain where this is coming from. He tells you, we're doing this to demonstrate to God that we are for Christ. That sounds nothing like Romans 9. And and sometimes we do have to kind of knock down our sacred cows and say, great people can get things really wrong. That is wrong. To love Jesus Christ is to love the law and the prophets. To love Jesus Christ is to love the patriarchs. To love Jesus Christ is to love the covenants. To love Jesus Christ is to love Israel. To love Jesus Christ is to love Israel. Uh, And again... This, you know, when you think about, wow, what are my big moral struggles? What are, about, what are my sin struggles? You might think, I, honestly, being anti-Semitic is just not a huge thing, largely because there's just so little Jewish population around me that that would even be on my radar. It still has to be said. It still has to be said. I mean, when Luther wrote that, Uh, not quite 400 years later, do you understand the gift that he gave on the silver platter to the Nazi party in his country to be able to quote the preeminent German theologian and say, well, what did he say? To love Christ, to love the Messiah, is to love Israel. Well, then we've got to ask, who is Israel? I mean, we just said, don't think so much the nation-state established in the late 40s. Who is Israel? Um, why is Paul bringing this question up? I mean, it's like, we, you know, we had this really happy passage last week. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then just, all that, you know, the serious stuff about, about ethnic Israel. How did, how, why did he switch gears so fast? Well, think about the logic of it. He just got through saying... Nothing can separate you from God's love. All right? There's that. And he just got through saying, there's no people like Israel. No one else had the privileges. No one else had the promises and the resources and the, and the ancestors that Israel has. So there's that. All right, great. So how, how's it going? As Paul is writing Romans, how's it going? And largely what he's seeing is when he goes into an area and he tells people, let me tell you who the Messiah is. Let me tell you about the man whom I've met who fulfills the law and the prophets. Is the response usually, this is fantastic. We want to become Christians. Usually not. And, and how does that affect him? Look in verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he says something pretty radical. Verse 3, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. I mean, understand what he's saying. He's saying I, I could almost wish that God would send me to hell so that none of these people that I care about ever had to experience the wrath of God. I, I could wish that I were the person who rejected the Messiah and I was treated accordingly so that these people that I care about never had to experience what happens when you reject the Messiah. Paul kind of pulls back and says, all right, but, but let's think about something. Has God's word failed? You know, he asked that question in the passage. Has God's word failed? Nothing can separate you from God's love. These are the most special people on earth, but not many of them are responding. Has God's word failed? And here's how Paul comes back at that question. Has it ever been the case that if you're just descended from Abraham, you're good? Has it ever been the case that if you're just of the right genealogy, everything is good between you and God? Has that ever been the case from the beginning? And the answer is no. He says, let's think about this. All right? Who's, humanly speaking, who's the father of Israel? Abraham. Abraham isn't just a huge deal in the Old Testament. Abraham's a huge deal in the New Testament. Massively important. Were, were just his two sons at first, were they right with God just from being his sons? And Paul says, well, do you know your history? <clears throat> Before he had Isaac, it was Ishmael. But the promises were through Isaac. The line of Ishmael did not pursue God, did not identify with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Part of the history. Well then, okay, so then do you have to be descended from Isaac or Jacob? And Paul says, no. In each case, think about Isaac's children, Jacob and whom? Esau. And Paul quotes from the prophet Malachi, and boy, this is a jarring quote, where God says, Jacob I loved, and what? This just sets our teeth on edge when we read it. And Esau I hated. Now, quick word about this. Scholars seem to agree that when Malachi writes that, when God says that, that's Hebrew idiom. It's an idiom that actually Jesus used. You know, there's a place where Jesus says, um, unless a man hates his father, mother, sister, brother, children, his own life, he can't be my disciple. Is he really saying, go out and hate your dad's guts? No. It's a Hebrew, it, it's, a, and it's, it's an intensive way of saying, unless the love that you have for me and your commitment to me dwarfs all your other loves and commitments, you can't be my disciple. Almost looks like hatred in comparison. It seems to be the case that God, in the prophet Malachi, says that about Jacob and Esau. I am so committed to Jacob whose name has changed to Israel, to him in particular, that in comparison, I hate Esau. Now, what's the big takeaway? The big takeaway is this. In fact, he explicitly says this. Descent from does not equal belong to. Descent from does not equal belong to. 
All right? So what? Let, let, me, let me get you to think about two examples. One from the Bible and just one from our, our world, okay? First from the Bible. One of Jesus' early conversations when he went public as the Messiah is with this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus could just go down the list of what should a godly man have in his life. What, what, what things should be true of his. You could just kind of go down this punch list and Nicodemus could go check, 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 check. It's almost like if, when you're healthy and you go to the doctor and they give you those questionnaires, you know, and have you had this, this, this? You know, it just kind of feels good to go, no, 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 no. I mean, and hopefully it makes us very thankful. Uh, I mean, he could go, yes, 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 yes. Descended from Abraham, descended from Isaac, descended from Jacob, able to trace his genealogy, a Pharisee. To us, that's a bad word. Wasn't a bad word to his peers. The Pharisees were the people that take this stuff seriously. Jewish mamas would have said, you need to be like the Pharisees and clean your room. Yes, 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 yes. Circumcised on the eighth day. Bang, 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 bang. And Jesus is sitting there with him. And he says, unless you're born again, you can't go into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, if you're not born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. And think about that. That all the promises in Scripture are to Israel. All the special treasures are for Israel. And here's a man, and I mean, he is in... Ground zero, Israelite identity, and the Messiah comes to him and sits with him. And there he is with all the right background and all the right genealogy and all the right practices. And Jesus, and Jesus says, if you're not born again, you're not in this kingdom. And that's first century. Think about our century. Think about right now. Think about what a critical mass there is in the Bible Belt. Uh, Not just in the Bible Belt, but certainly in the Bible Belt, of people who could say, you know, my parents were wonderful Christians. You know, I remember uh, waking up and seeing my, um, my mom praying. Or I remember seeing my dad reading his Bible. I, I had godly grandparents. Uh, I, um, I remember when I was baptized, or it was so young that I just know that I was baptized, and we used the baptismal gown that had been my great-grandparents. And, uh, you know, I kind of drifted away from it in college, but came back, and I, 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 I love our church. I love being in our church. All those things can be Tremendous blessings. But being descended from saved people, being descended from people who are in the real church, and even being baptized and brought into the visible institutional church does not have the power to change a heart. You know, you, you, you look at this text that you can be descended from Abraham and not be a child of the promise. 
You can be a Pharisee sitting with the Messiah, wanting to talk about truth, and the Messiah can look at you and say, if you're not born again, you cannot come into the kingdom of heaven. In an extremely parallel way, you can be in church. The children are grandchildren of church people. You can be baptized. You can be from the right line and in the right institution and have an unchanged heart. What is it we all need? You know, um, Paul uh, is very compassionate. I, I, I don't know if I could ever say this. He said, I, I could just wish, I could almost wish that I could go to hell so that people I care about never go through that. And uh, a lot of commentators pointed out he seems to be echoing something that Moses said when, uh, when the Israelites were just, just going crazy and they, they make the golden calf and they're just being idiots. And, you know, Moses knows how angry God is and Moses is angry. And he intercedes for them, goes to bat for them, and he says to God, look, take my name out of the book of life so that their name won't be taken out of the book of life. But Moses can't do that. Paul says, you know, I could, I, I could just wish that I could be cut off so that my, my kinsmen, my, my people I love, that they won't be cut off. Paul can't do that. Can anybody say, I wish that I could be cursed so that you won't be cursed? And you know where this is going. It's only one person has ever been able to say that and then do it. The Messiah of Israel. And not begrudgingly, and not because the Father made Him, and not because the Father was unwilling. But could anything be more beautiful and could anything be more horrible than for the Messiah to fall under the curse that Israel deserved and that new Israel, the church, deserves so that we're not ever cut off. And you know, at the end of the day, what all of us have to ask is, whatever my background, whoever my grandparents were, whenever I was baptized, if I was baptized, whatever church I I love and how I feel about it, is my only hope and confidence in that the Messiah was cursed so that I won't be cut off. And, you know, it it may be that you've believed that for decades, and it may be that you've been in church for decades, but really, you've never known if you had eternal life because you've never really rested on that. That you've been trying to be good enough for God to accept you when that's a fool's errand. And what you, what, you are, what you are invited to do is to thrust yourself on the Messiah and say, you, you, you take what I deserve so that I get what you deserve. That's the gospel. That's being Israel. We're going to talk about this more as we go through Romans. The church does not replace Israel. The church is the expanding of Israel. Sinners 
saved by grace, their sins washed away, the children of Abraham. That's the good news. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our heritage. Even as we pray this as a church, we thank you for our heritage, the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the promises, the giving of the law, the patriarchs, and our great Messiah. And Father, even as we pray this, we... um, We pray for Jewish friends, Jewish acquaintances. Lord, spare us from ever treating them, uh, communicating with them in a way that is condescending or treating them like they are projects. But Father, would would you take this reality that the gospel is for them first, not for the Gentile? Put those friends, those co-workers acquaintances on our hearts that we would pray for them and intercede for them that we would love them and honor them that they would believe on the Messiah the fulfillment of the law and the prophets we ask in his name, Amen